Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended quote-unquote summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help. Robert Weintraub is the author of The Divine Miss Marble a life of tennis, fame, and mystery. He has written about sports for Slate, Play, ESPN.com, The Guardian, Deadspin, and many more. He's the author of four books, including The Divine Miss Marble, and also the New York Times bestseller, No Better Friend. He currently lives in Decatur, Georgia, but grew up in the large shadow cast by Yankee Stadium in Rye, New York. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm so excited to discuss Miss Marble with you. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure. So The Divine Miss Marble, A Life of Tennis, Fame, and Mystery is like a deep, deep dive into Alice Marble's (laughs) life. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, what was it about her that kept you so interested? Like, why did you, you must have spent so much time on this book. What was it about her that captivated you so much? what, What made you write this book? Yeah, a lot of time and a lot of miles back when you could travel freely without worrying about things. It was, I think, I was so impressed by Alice's uh, stick-to-itiveness, you know, the, the fact that she got hit with so many obstacles in her life constantly, and she always rose back up on her feet and came back stronger. You know, she was a great player, but came from nothing. You know, she had to start playing on, on hard scrabble cement courts in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco and really came from nothing to become this great champion. And then just on the verge of her breakthrough, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis and was in a sanitarium partially and was out of the sport for two full years and came back from that to win what we would call today the U.S. Open. Then it was called the U.S. Nationals and became the biggest star in the sport. And from then on, it was one kind of body blow after another, whether it was other battles with health problems that were debilitating, but she kept going through them and a lot of personal issues in her private life and the war, which ended her career prematurely, World War II, which really kept her from being, you know, an all-time great who everybody would know about today. So I was just, you know, as, as I came across and discovered yet one more kind of pitfall after another that she managed to uh, get back 
from that, you know, I just became so impressed with her and she <laughs> kind of became, and I started to idolize her. So it made the travel and the long days in the archives, blowing through these dusty old, you know, manuscripts and materials. It was easy because I was fascinated by every step she took from then on. Hmm. And you mentioned several points at several points in the book how maybe like this is what she recorded, but you couldn't verify it anywhere or there was no, you know, there was like no backup. So you're kind of like, this is what she said. Let's we'll have to take her at her word. So, but it sounded like you had a lot of skepticism about some of it. How did you end up feeling about her retelling of her story? And like, do you think it was all accurate? Like what was what really happened? Well, she, you know, where the facts met the legend, she liked to print the legend, so they say. Uh, <laughs> you know, you have, to, you have to put it in context. She, she talked a lot about, you know, her this espionage mission that she went on during World War II at the behest of the Army intelligence to reconnect with a former lover who was a Swiss banker who was working with the Nazis to kind of, you know, launder their money. And her assignment was to go and find him in Switzerland, reconnect and, and find any evidence she could of this nefarious duty and then come back to America with it. But she says she found it and was shot for her troubles by a Russian double agent while being chased through the mountains of the Swiss Alps. Now, it's an incredible story and there's just enough sort of truth or unprovable falsehoods in it to make it at least, you know, sort of believable. However, I, as you say, I couldn't really verify much of it. And you have to understand, she was a woman who was at these incredible heights of fame during the Depression when everybody in the country was on her knees, really. Uh, but by the 60s, you know, she was a forgotten figure. She had very little money because she didn't get to earn any through her tennis greatness because it was all amateur in those days. And she was some you know, forgotten figure living on the margins in, the, in Palm Desert, California. So I think there was a lot of, you know, this is who I was. And if I have to embellish my tale a little bit to get people, uh, you know, to remember me a little bit more, then it's okay because I've earned it. And I think she did earn it. And she always had this kind of maxim, give the give the fans what they want, whether she was on the tennis court or whether she was singing in a nightclub, which she did, or appearing on the radio, which she did all the time when she was at the height of her fame, or, you know, designing fashions, which she also did quite a bit of her own and then sported them on the court and in public. You know, she did a lot of many different things in her life, and she always, you know, did it to please her public. And I think this tales of her World War II daring do may have gone along the same lines and she just <laughs> kind of, you know, exaggerated for effect, as we say. You know, it's so interesting because when you talk to memoir writers, right, there's this whole debate about what exactly is truth. Is it like your truth or what do you believe or is it your perception? But then someone like you comes in who tries to make sense of all of the interpretation and try to like squeeze out all the facts. And it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky job. It's sort of murky when you have to rely on people's memory or their depictions of themselves. I don't know. <laughs> Boy, you are not kidding. It is. You always have to sort of take the 50,000 foot view. And it's not always easy because, you know, you want to believe the memoir writer and you want to go on what she says was her journey at all times. And, you know, memory is tricky, of course. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of you never want to believe the person closest to the action because their memories are least reliable. Right. But, you know, I found that for the most part, you know, she was accurate for what she remembered and talked about. She actually wrote two memoirs. Another one came out sort of right at the height of her fame. And, you know, in both of them, there's a lot of truth in there. There's just a little bit extra involved that, you know, was done either to sell more books or to kind of, you know, give her what she thought was the true, uh, as you mentioned, the sort of true life that she 
thought about in her head, <laughs> as opposed to the facts that you come across, you know, in the newspapers of the time. So I tried to walk that tightrope very carefully and, you know, not, not give her the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, not, not crap all over what she saw <laughs> in her own life. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things that you said that you drew you to her and what drew me to this story and to many sports stories, honestly, is the ability mm-hmm. to sort of persevere and like what makes some people be able to overcome things in their life and flourish and use their physical gifts and translate it all with a like perfect combination of sort of mental toughness and physical agility to become like a huge sports star. Whereas so many others, I mean, most people can't achieve that. And then when I was reading about Alice and even, you know, the rape scene at the beginning of the book, which I couldn't really, I mean, I couldn't believe she, like, even if you just had that, and then she had so many people die and drop dead next to her and like one thing after another, and then coming back from a two year break. I mean, nowadays we, you know, on the tennis door, we hear about, like somebody gets surgery or like Djokovic is out for a little bit or something, right? But it's like back then they didn't have all of that machinery to sort of rehabilitate people. So anyway, that was my long way of saying, first of all, what do you think makes some people able to sort of overcome this type of adversity? And second, why do you think we're all just so drawn to stories like this? Well, you know, I wish I knew what uh, people (laughs) would be able to do it. So I would do it myself. It's really incredible, as you say. I didn't even mention her sexual assault. Absolutely. And she lost her father when she was very young. I mean, it's just an incredible portrait of somebody who just refused to lose, to use a cliche. I hate to do that. But I mean, it's, you know, we see it, you know, Michael Jordan's been in the news lately just because of this documentary about him recently. And, you know, he's somebody else who just manifested everything around him to use to a single-minded purpose, which was to win, (laughs) win games. And I think Alice was maybe not quite that single-minded, but had the same sort of mindset, which was, you know, this is what I want to do. And not only am I not going to let things happen to me that will derail me from that, I'm going to use them as fuel. And that's really rare and it's incredibly admirable. And, you know, it's just something in the brain chemistry, I, I suppose, that that makes them these these rare few trying for better or for worse and mostly for worse as something to overcome, as something to push them day in and day out. You know, when she was laid up for two years, she got out of bed and began a really rigorous physical training program that we would take for granted today, obviously, but at the time was just unheard of. And people were like, why are you skipping rope every day and doing all these athletic, you know, all this physical training shit, you know, I'm, I'm going to get back to the top. I'm going to do what it takes to be there. That's what I want to do in life. And you have to really admire somebody who, you know, sets aside everything else like that and, and uses that kind of motivation to get to where they want to go. It's, it's so rare and so hard to do that. As I say, that's what really, in the end, drew me to her and to her story and made it, you know, for all the things that she did that we, we might question <laughs> in terms of <laughs> memoir writing, it was overwhelmed by uh, the fact that my admiration for her was so deep because of her her amazing comeback abilities. So this book felt very cinematic to me. It felt like I was, you know, <laughs> reading the movie that I was going to eventually watch. Do you have an actress in mind who would play Alice if, if this were to become a movie? Wow, that's a great question. I suppose the first person just who leaps to mind maybe is uh, Charlize Theron, mm-hmm. right? Because she kind of has that combination of, you know, great physical presence as well as, you know, the kind of beauty and, and kind of grace and all the other uh, attributes that, that Alice had. Is, but it's very believable as somebody you could see, you know, running her opponent into the ground on the tennis court and then 
changing her clothes and singing in a nightclub, you know, or going out of the town with one of her many admirers. So I guess that there's probably uh, no shortage of actresses who could make it happen, but Charlize is the first one that leaps to mind, and obviously that would be great if it ever came to pass. But I'm not holding my breath in that. <laughs> Still fun to think about. <laughs> yes, very much so. So you write about all kinds of sports, not just tennis. Tell me about your, like, your love of sports yourself. Do you love to play sports? Like, how did you end up becoming an avid sports writer, essentially? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I followed the traditional path, which was I played them avidly until I realized uh, I was not very good at them and certainly not good at them to continue playing beyond high school, at which point I switched over to covering them. uh, (laughs) You know, I worked in sports television for a long time. And then when I had a family kind of transitioned into writing because there was a lot less travel and long hours. And, you know, I've just always been really fascinated by the history of sports and the the sort of day-in, day-out competition of sports and the the outsized personalities that come with it and the the things that we are talking about, the kind of people who wind up achieving greatness have these incredible qualities that so few of us have. And I think most of us, certainly myself included, are drawn to that. And, you know, by writing about them, I get to sort of, you know, get to walk in their shoes a little bit. You know, I get to feel at least a little bit how it must have felt for Alice to be at her lowest of lows and, and overcome all that to get to this incredible precipice, you know? And I think that's what draws a lot of us to sports in general is the fact that they get to see these athletes who, you know, are performing at this incredibly high level and, and knowing how they got there, each of them with their individual stories intact, you know, it's, it's really something that's fascinating. It's a drama that never ends. And, you know, I think that when we get sports back <laughs> someday, hopefully that will, you know, certainly continue to be the case. And uh, I'll keep, covering it until the day I die. I, I can't get enough of it, really. My husband is such a sports fan, and this quarantine, I swear, I think that's been the hardest part for him. Like, whenever anyone asks, <laughs> he's like, I miss sports it so much. Both. It becomes part of your everyday life. I mean, it really does. And, it's, you know, it's we can talk in the abstract about, you know, how seeing these great athletes perform is, is, is so much of it, but it's also just a daily thing that's part of your life. You know, it, it becomes... As much as part of your day is, you know, brushing your teeth or walking the dog, you know, turning on the ball game and seeing how your team did. And when you take that away out of nowhere, really, you know, that's very tough to overcome for all of us. So in, in, a, in a way, we're all Alice Marble right, right now and we have to overcome this body below, but we'll get there. We'll get back to the heights. I'm sure. Of it. That's true. I feel like it's a double whammy with sports because you have the community of sort of shared rooting for someone. Right. So like to yeah. be a fan you're a part of something. And I feel like it's hard these days to feel a part of anything, particularly now. And then to have yeah. that taken away, like, what does it mean if you're, you know, I don't know, a Denver Broncos fan when like nobody's playing or, you know, I don't know. Even. <laughs> anyway, I'll just say we've had a lot of, um, yeah, right, we've, we've had a lot of uh, tennis channel reruns on the TVs around here. So <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for some Very new matches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The live drama is missing from those. The, the matches may be great, but when you know who won already, it kind of takes away from a lot of its pleasure, unfortunately. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm dying for the return of live sports. And, you know, I'm a big New York Yankees fan and Cincinnati Bengals fan. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the part of your identity after a long time, especially you, as you say, you become a community with the, uh, with your fellow fans and, you know, to have that ripped away from you, you start to question who you are a little bit. So the sooner sports can get back and, and kind of make us all whole again, that'll be a good day. That's true. So you've just finished, how long did it take, by the way, to, to do all this research and write this book? It must've been a while. 
Yeah, I mean, two-year range from beginning to end, including the sort of pre-production, as they say, you know, trying to figure out if it was really a book. And then once it was, and I had a sort of way to tell it, you know, there were a lot of ways to go with it, but I had to kind of insert myself into the story a little bit more than I usually would be inclined to do because of the mystery involved and because of, you know, so much of it is kind of trying to figure out what exactly Alice did and did not do. So I, I turned it a little bit into a bit of a mystery story or the dogged detective on the case of figuring out what Alice's life and what happened was real and what was not real. So that took a little bit longer than usual, but, you know, from about the two-year range, which, you know, is, is pretty standard for me for turning a book around. You know, some people take a lot longer. Other people who write a lot faster than I do and I'm envious of can crank them out in less time. But I, for me, it's about two-year two-year range. So do you know what your next two years are allocated to at this point? <laughs> Great question. The nothing definitely set in stone, so I, sh- I probably shouldn't talk about it. But more interesting tales of a, of a fascinating figure, so let's put it that way. Not necessarily involved in tennis, but, you know, another rich human being, let's say that. Great. Awesome. Do you play tennis, by the way? Yeah, absolutely. I love to play. You know, I don't play as much as I used to with with the family and the wonky knees, but I definitely enjoy playing. And it, I live in Atlanta, where there's a huge you know, doubles kind of league scene. So I've played for many years in the in the doubles leagues around Atlanta and it's great. It's, you know, the kind of thing I hope to get back to when we can all shake hands over the net again. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love tennis. I feel like it's like you're having a conversation when you're not even talking, you know, it's so fun. Like, uh, I don't know. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Every stroke is another, uh, is another witticism or exactly. uh, declaratory statement. That's yes. right. Yes. <laughs> so do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Boy, that's a, that's an open <laughs> question. I'll tell you. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, certainly if you think something is worthy of a story to be told at book length, do it. You know, I mean that I was, like I say, I started in television and I always, you know, I was a big reader and I always thought I could write a book, but you know, at no point did I ever say to myself, well, let's just go ahead and do it until the time came and somebody encouraged me and said, you can do it. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. I can. So, you know, there's no sort of, you know, alternative to just sitting down and doing it and banging it out. And I would certainly say if you're writing a book length, you know, treat is there, don't approach it. Don't think about the big picture that gets too overwhelming. Just think about, you know, that day's writing and what's, you know, this small little chunk that you can bite off and finish in the near future and keep your goals small and easily attainable. And that way, after a lot of those goals are achieved, you find yourself with a a big goal achieved as well, a big book all ready to be published. So it takes some doing, but it's, it's not beyond any of you out there. I'd say that for sure. I think that's good life advice in general. You know, any, anything could seem (laughs) overwhelming unless you break it down into small pieces. (laughs) Exactly. That's the best. That's the best way to go, as you say, hour by hour. Because if you look at the big picture, boy, you'll just bury your head under your covers and stay in bed forever. Yes, particularly these days. <laughs> particularly yeah. at the thought of perhaps not even having school in the fall. Which, oh, oh my gosh. Anyway, yeah. how old are your kids? Yeah, I, I have a twelve-year-old girl and a ten-year-old boy, so they are, you know, enjoying the idea of not going back to school very much. But I'm dreading it. So, uh, <laughs> like most people, I'm, you know. You know, take on yet more of a parent slash teacher role this fall, but you know, it's a cross we all have to bear. It looks like. Yeah, I have a thirteen-year-old boy-girl twins, and then I have a five and seven-year-old. So my little my little kids are are fine, but my twins. I mean, my daughter 
my 13-year-old daughter misses her friend so much that she's willing to, like, sit in school all day if she gets to hang out with him. So, <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Just, I mean, that's the other thing. The social component. This is beyond uh, the dumbing down of our kids. It's just horrible for these kids not to be able to see their friends every single day. You know, it's tough. I feel so bad for them, but I don't know. I don't know. I can't get them sick either, so. Right. Uh, it's a rock and a hard place. I know. I keep thinking this is probably the ideal time in my own personal life for this to have happened, you know, where I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy, like, not really being that social and, like, getting all my sort of socializing done over the Internet by talking to friends and family yeah. and just, like, hanging out with my kids and being very settled. But at so many other parts of my life, this would have been a total disaster when things were up in the air, when I was trying to meet somebody or when I was like, ugh. anyway, whatever. I'm going on a tangent I here. But- I <laughs> As a writer, uh, I'm a natural shut in anyway. So, you know, this is, this is right in my alley. So it, in that sense, social distancing isn't a problem, but all the other aspects of it are just terrible. Yes. So yes. the sooner it's over, the better. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. And thanks for the entertainment of your book. I will channel (laughs) Miss Marble as I'm playing tennis later today. And (laughs) the resilience that she had. So thanks for that. Wear shorts. You know, that was her big thing is she chucked aside the skirts and put on the shorts and changed the game forever. So I would definitely advise you to not play the game in in calf-length skirts, if you can avoid it. You know, I actually wouldn't mind playing tennis in a calf-length. I love long skirts. Like, if they're, <laughs> if that fat, I'm wearing a, a tennis skirt now. I feel like, and I hate shorts, so I, I don't know. I feel like I should have been born in a different era. I would have been happy yeah, with, like... You were uh, a they, pre-Alice Marble type. Yeah, no exactly. So, <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, maybe one of these days we'll meet in person and could play some tennis and <laughs> and all the rest. So No doubt. I'd uh, love to have a conversation over the net with you at any time. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day book blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.